0: have a wonderful class out there, led by our amazing people who teach Sunday school to kids, so it's fantastic. If you're looking for a place to plug in, by the way, we have uh, many kids here, in case you haven't noticed, and uh, we need help. We need help. And so, if you are uh, always looking for something to do, you can always talk to Logan, and she will find something for you. She's our children's director. So, so today we're going to be in the book of Hebrews. Again, we're, we're walking through the, uh, this book. And this is the first thing we've gone through since we went through 1 Peter back before the whole COVID disaster. So, which I think we're still in, but are coming out of. And so, um, we've been really excited to get back into what we normally do here, which is we just walk um, exposition, expositionally, kind of verse by verse, through a book of the Bible. And so, that's what we're doing. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 3 today. And uh, Treb had looked at the beginning, the first few verses, and we'll be in chapter 7 today. But just as a reminder that life is not ideal. We do not live in some sort of insulated uh, wonderland. Uh, we have uh, bad days. We have rough weeks. We have hard years. And this, this week was rough in the Scott household. We had the stomach bug go through. And we lost like two complete days. They were just literally down the toilet, along with everything else. So um, <laughs> it's like you can't do... Or we have laundry. It's just life. Like we cannot... I, I wish... It's not just everybody getting sick, that's bad, but then being out of commission for two days for Jenny and I with four kids and work and blah blah blah. (laughs) Anyway, so life is not ideal. And so we enter, all of us enter this picture today, living an unideal life. And the book of the Hebrews book was written to the Hebrews, it was written to them in unideal circumstances. And there are things that are are encouraging them or pushing them to to question the reality of Jesus, to question their faith, to question that in which they had trusted for their salvation. And so this book, we always have to keep in context because we'll get lost in the weeds, that this book is written to people who are struggling with unbelief, struggling with their faith, struggling to walk with the risen Christ. That's who it was written to, which means that by proxy it's written to us today because we too live in hard times. We have difficult days And they suffered far more than we did. Persecution that would come, literal threat of death, actual death that we gratefully, at least at this point, do not have to struggle with here in our context. But we do. We struggle in our own ways. And so we need to remember that as we walk into this book that it was written to people in unideal circumstances for people throughout all all history, 2,000 years ago, still incredibly applicable today because it's the word of God and it's living and active, that it matters for us today. So open your Bible with me to Hebrews chapter 3, and we're going to pray before we, we get into the Bible here. Lord, we, we just lift up this time. We open our, the word to you, and we do so with fear and trembling because it is the word of God. And we stand before your word as the authority over life and doctrine for all of us and what we believe and how we live. And so we come to you and we ask your spirit to teach us. Teach us from your word. Teach us what you want us to know. Help us to study well the word. Help us to apply what you're teaching us today. Help us hear your voice, what you're telling us, and then help us to live out the reality of the truth that you tell us, and help us to do that with with tender hearts toward you and your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So in the context of chapter three, Trev went over last week, and he's out of town, by the way, so he'll be here, he'll be back. But... Uh, he looked at uh, Jesus being greater than Moses. And so Hebrews, right, is, is they're going and they've described Jesus as being higher than the angels. And yet he was, he was made like us. He was in his humanity. And yet he's greater than Moses. And he will be, uh, there will be these themes that are going to get worked out through the book of Hebrews about Jesus as the high priest. And one of the themes that is going through here is, is that not only is there a high priest and, and, and apostle, meaning the, the one who was sent, but that he is the one who uh, is is our, we are the house of Jesus, like we are part of his family. In chapter 2, we looked at the reality that Jesus has made us brothers and sisters. Chapter 3 starts out, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. If we skip down through to verse 6, But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, in contrast to Moses who was a servant, Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So, the context for what we're getting into here is, is that Jesus, being greater than Moses, and being faithful as the son, is able to maintain his household. And so, next comes this warning, and there's going to be this back and forth of Hebrew, of this exhortation of this truth, and then a warning against unbelief. We're going to see this back and forth in this whole book. And so... Let's get into it and see what the Lord wants to teach us. So we'll be in uh, verse 7 to start. So it says So, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation and I said, Their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it brothers that none of you has a sinful unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God but encourage one another daily as long as it is still called today so that none of you may be hardened by the by sin's deceitfulness or by the deceitfulness of sin we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first as has just been said today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not those who disobeyed? So, we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. All right. So, like, every time we read this, you read through it, and you're like, what is he talking about? Well, that's what we do in a sermon. So, is we try to explain it. So, like, we're going to kind of chunk this up into three sections. First, 7 through 11. So, He's quoting Psalm 95, which Hebrews quotes the Psalms all the time. And in understanding the book of Hebrews, it's uh, you've got to have an understanding of the Old Testament. I don't know that any other book, maybe Romans, for, for sure Revelation. But anyway, you're going to have a hard time understanding Hebrews without a really good grasp on the Old Testament. So we're going to go back to what Psalm 95 is referring to, which is the story that happens in Exodus chapter 17. So... In order to give context to what we're going to talk about here, let's look at the actual story. So if you remember, in the book of Exodus, we'll be in chapter 17. So Moses gets called in chapter 3 to go, and the Lord has heard the cry of the Israelites, and they're down enslaved in Egypt, and he sends Moses to go rescue them. He goes to rescue them. They, uh, Pharaoh won't let them go. There are ten plagues. Then there is finally the, the Passover where the, the angel of death goes over. And then they, the Israelites escape from God's judgment from the Passover. They uh, leave Egypt and people are giving them tons of gift golden gifts as they're, as they're walking out as slaves. They walk through the water, the sea on dry land. They come out as the redeemed people and they're in the desert. The Lord has given them in chapter 16. He gives them manna and quail to provide for them. And then in verse 17, chapter 17, excuse me we get there and we run into a problem. And it says the whole Israelite community this 17:1 set out from the desert of sin traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded them. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Desert no water bad news. So they quarrelled with Moses and they said, "Give us water to drink." And Moses replied, "Why do you quarrel with me, poor Moses? Why do you put the Lord to the test?" But the people were thirsty for water there, which is nothing wrong with having a need, right? But then they grumbled against Moses and they said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Because that's what Moses did. Like he did all this stuff and the Lord brought them out of Egypt so he could just kill them in the desert. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. So, but that's how they feel. And then in verse 4, Moses cries out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And so the Lord answered Moses. Walk on ahead of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff that you use to strike the Nile. So remember Moses' the staff strikes the Nile, it turns to blood, he does things with it, he sticks it in the sea, it spreads it opens up. It's like this uh, it's this testimony of God God can do it, I can't, but I'm gonna stick my stick in the water, and God's gonna do things that I'm unable to do. So it says, Take it, and then look in verse six. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. So I don't know how familiar you are with biblical geography but you don't have to turn with me but if you look back in Exodus chapter 3 where the whole story begins says verse 1 now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro his father-in-law the priest of Midian and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb the mountain of God and there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames and fire within a bush so Moses has this trouble the Lord says I want you to go back to where this whole thing started remember when I sent you and you said you wouldn't go and you said you couldn't talk, and all these things, and I said to go and tell them that I am with you, and I gave you my name. I'm bringing you back to the place that I called you from, and to, be, to begin with, to show you that I can take care of you. So he says, strike the rock, which is not generally how you get water. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. As a side note for your own study, look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. There's a really great uh, tie-in to Jesus being the rock and the, the living water from which we drink, and this is a picture of Christ uh, giving us what we need in the desert. Go to that for your own homework. We won't go down the rabbit trail. But he says and the water will come out of for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place, the place Massah, which means testing and Meribah which means quarreling because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord. This is really important. The test of the Lord saying is the Lord among us or not? See they weren't just thirsty. They weren't just Worried, they were testing the Lord. They said, is the Lord among us or not? So just look at the structure of that sentence. Is the Lord among us or not? So where is their focus? It's on themselves. Is the Lord with us or not? That's backwards. The question should be, are we with the Lord or not? They're like, we're here, is the Lord with us or not? It's a very reasonable, like natural response, but it's a very it's a response that is based in, and what Hebrews is clarifying, is based in unbelief. They had failed, they had not believed in God's power and his promises. They hit this is the group of people who had walked out on foot, two and a half million plus, walked out of Egypt wealthy as slaves. They come out away from all of these plagues from which they were protected. They literally walk through the sea on dry land. Walls of water on either side of them. Unbelievable miracles, right? And then they walk out. Pharaoh's armies are destroyed behind them. Boom, they are the, the picture of the redeemed. They've been brought out of slavery, baptized through the water. They are now the redeemed people of God. They have seen these miracles. And yet they come up to a problem with no water in the desert. And the first thing that they do is they question God's power and his promises. They're asking, when they're asking Moses, they're really telling the Lord, did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us in the desert? That reveals a whole lot about their concept of who God is. They think that God is vindictive and small and that he would bring them out into the desert to kill them. That's not who God is at all. They have a wrong concept of God. And that gets manifested in unbelief of who he truly is. So if we jump back into Hebrews, when it says today if you hear his voice, you're going to hear that phrase, three t- the word, three times today in this passage. Today if you hear his voice. Look at, look at what it says not to do. This is straight out of Psalm 95. Do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert. So what was the problem? They heard God's voice and then what did they do? They hardened their hearts. Your father's tested and tried me for 40 years, saw what I did. This is why I was angry with the generation. Their hearts always go astray. So this is not the only dumb thing the Israelites did. They did lots of other things, like when Moses goes up to receive the, the law, uh, they make a stone calf, and, and uh, excuse me, a golden calf, and they sacrifice to this idol, and they do all these things. And then finally, the last straw is that when they send these 12 spies from each from from the tribes, they go into the promised land to spy it out. Ten of the twelve come back and say, everybody there was giants. We're like, grasshoppers, there's no way that we can do this because God is not bigger than the guys. That's what they're saying. Two guys, Caleb and Joshua, are like, what? Excuse me, do you remember who God is? He's the guy that did all this stuff. Let's go get it. Go take the land. Well, the people go with the ten, and because of that, they, because of their unbelief, they had to wander in the desert for 40 years. God did not intend to bring them out of Egypt, wander for 40 years, and then go to the promised land. He intended to bring them out of Egypt. They walk through the desert on the way to the promised land, and then they get there and they rest. That's what he was planning for them. But they didn't believe him. And so they got judged for 40 years. And that whole generation, everybody over the age of 20 died in the desert. If you ever are interested to do the math on that, it's a lot of corpses in the desert. They did not believe who God said he was. And so they did not experience the blessing that God had planned for them. They did not enter his rest. So there's a warning not to do that. So in verse 12, it says this. See to it, or take care, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. So that word unbelieving happens twice in the book of Hebrews. We're going to see it in, in just a second. Uh, at the end of this passage here, we already read it. It only happens twice in this book. It happens other places in the scripture. The opposite of that word unbelieving, means to believe or have faith, happens 31 times in the book. See, Hebrews is is not just a warning to not believe. It's a a call to have faith. It's a call to maintain the faith that we already have. And we very much get tangled up in the weeds. We're like, what does it mean to unbelieve and turn away from? Listen, the call is to who? Brothers and sisters. The call in verse 1 of chapter 3, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling. It's to believers. It's to the house of Christ. It's to the house of God. It's to the family of God. And he's telling them, keep believing. Brothers, be careful, take care, see to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that does what? Turns away from the living God. That is what sinful, unbelieving hearts do. They turn away from God, and they turn to just list the things. Turn to my own self. Turn to sin. I turn to other philosophies. I turn to this. I turn to other religions. I turn to whatever. I turn to uh, the flesh. I turn to whatever. It's a giant list of things, all of them away from what? The living God. What is our only hope in life and death? That we belong to God and not ourselves. The only hope we have is the living God. And yet sinful, unbelieving hearts, the constant symptom is that we turn away from Him. So this warning is if your heart is turning away from God, be careful. Be careful. But do you see this uh, word right here? In 13, it says, but it's wonderful contrast between that unbelieving heart. What is the response? Encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So it says, encourage. Encourage who? One another. That's us in here, the church. When? Daily. For how long? As long as it's still called today. What's the today referencing? Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Any day that ends in a why, it's today. It's today. It's it doesn't matter what day it is. Is it today? Yes. Good. I need to encourage you. You need to encourage me. Why? Because today I need to hear God's voice, and today I need to not harden my heart to his voice. Until when? Or, for, or why? So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So look at the sentence structure here, right? For all you like word nerds or whatever, that this idea that hardened by the word may be hardened, right? It's a passive verb that we are hardened by what sins deceitfulness. See, deceit is is a verb, and to deceive means to. It's the action of keeping. The truth hidden so as to gain an advantage. So if I'm deceiving someone, I want to keep the truth hidden from them so that I can have a, an advantage over them to have power over them to manipulate them. That's what deception is. It's not just sort of this passive or this thing where it's like, oh, I'm just going to hide the truth. And you're like, you're playing a game of Monopoly and you don't know how much money I have. No. Deceit is where you are intentionally hiding the truth from someone in order to exert power over them. happens all the time. And it says that we are hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Deceitfulness here is an adjective that is modifying the noun sin. Sin is deceitful. It's describing what sin is like. Sin keeps the truth hidden from us in order to gain an advantage over us. The devil uses it all the time. It started in the Garden of Eden, and it's still going on today. That the devil deceived Adam and Eve and he made them question. I mean, he gaslighted them. And we're going to look at, even this the term for gay, we're going to look at it in just a little bit here. Uh, a clip from a movie where that term comes from. I'll get to it in just a second. But this idea that sin's deceitfulness is constant. And it's always around us. And there's no way to call it what it isn't or to say it's better than it is. Sin is deceitful. And it says, we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end, the confidence we had at first... Just as has been said, he repeats this Psalm ninety-five today. If you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Okay, but the problem we're going to look at right now is how is sin deceitful? And so there was a uh, if you've ever heard of the term gaslighting, it's kind of ubiquitous now, and it comes from a nineteen forty-four movie by the term gaslight. And so uh, it's got Ingrid Bergman and some other guy whose name I can't remember, and uh, <clears throat> this guy George is married to this this lady and uh, Ingrid Bergman, and he is trying to manipulate her. He does things like he turns the gas lights higher and lower, and then she's like, are the lights turning on and up and down? He's like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. He undermines her concept of reality. He undermines her concept of self so that he can control and manipulate her. And so we're going to look at this little scene right here, which is a scene from a classic movie, which I love, with Ingrid Bergman in it. She's kind of just lost her mind at a at a, uh, at a dinner party, and they've come up to the bedroom. And what I want you to watch is this. Aside from the fact that she's wearing white, it's this beautiful artistry, and he's wearing black, he is like the devil. And just listen to what he says, the words that he's using, how he bends the truth, how he manipulates her, and then watch her body composure, how she's responding to it. So let's go ahead and watch this clip real quick.
1: I've tried so hard to keep it within these walls, my own house. Ah, because you would go out tonight. The whole of London knows it. If I could only get inside that brain of yours and understand what makes you do these crazy, twisted things. Gregory, are you trying to tell me I'm insane? It's what I'm trying not to tell myself. But that's what you think, isn't it? That's what you've been hinting and suggesting for months now, ever since... Hmm? Since what? Since the day I lost your brooch. Hmm? Yes, that's when it all began. No, no. No, no, it began before that. The first day here when I found that letter. What letter? The one I found among the music from that man called Bowery. Sergius Bowery, yes. I remember. Yes, you're right. That's when it began. Yes. I can see you still, standing there and saying, look, Look at this letter, and staring at nothing. What? You had nothing in your hand. What? I was staggered. But I didn't know then how much reason I had to be... I don't know. What reason? I didn't know then about your mother. What about my mother? Your mother was mad. Oh, Gregory. She died in an asylum when you were a year old. That's not true. I've been making inquiries about Alice Alquist's sister. I've talked to the doctor who attended her. you Would like to see him? No. He described her symptoms to me. Do you like to hear them? Um, it began with her imagining things, that she heard noises, footsteps, voices. And then the voices began to speak to her. And in the end, she died in an asylum with no brain at all. No, please! Oh, no, no. Oh, now, perhaps you will understand a lot of things about yourself and me. Now, perhaps you will understand why I cannot let you meet people.
0: right, so that is a husband and his wife, and he is using, do you see how subtle he was? And he's like, oh, you had this letter. Now, none of those things he's saying are true. She had this letter. At the end of the movie, we we discover that, that this brooch that she apparently lost, he had hidden from her. See, he's hiding the truth from her to deceive her, to hold power over her, and that is what sin does to us. All the time. And this is what people do to each other. The reason gaslighting is is a phrase and is now ubiquitous is because people are now discovering, oh my goodness, this is what people have been doing to people all along. It's like, duh, it's in the Bible. The devil did it in in Genesis chapter 3. That's what he does. He comes in and he tries to undermine our concept of truth. He's like, what you think is true isn't really true. The Word of God doesn't say that. It's exactly what he did with Eve. Remember what he told her? He was like, Will that really happen if you eat that fruit? Did God really say that? He starts to undermine the foundations of truth. And that is what sin does. And when it happens, our hearts get hardened to what? To the word of God. It gets hard. Look, none of you would hear his voice. And do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. See, that is what sin does to us. Just like that. And it's... Sometimes it's overt. Most of the time, it's incredibly subtle. And just as a public service announcement, if you're in a relationship or someone is doing that to you, please come talk to me. And because we're going to talk about some of the ways that you can get out from under that, because that is, that is manipulation. It is, it is uh, evil, and it is sinful, and it's of the devil. So if you're a person who is treating another person like that, what you're doing is wrong, and it's evil, and you need to stop. If you're a person who is under that, you are a victim, and you need help to get out. Okay? It happens all the time. It happens on every level. It happens. Bosses do it to their employees. Governments do it to their people. Politicians do it. Just just turn an ear, open your eyes, and look at the deceitfulness of sin and how it's woven into every fabric of our society. This happens all the time. Now, what ends up is she ends up coming and encountering the truth, and that ends up winning out in the end. Her husband gets taken to jail, and everything ends up, okay, if you want to go watch the movie, you know that Ingram Bergman, Ingrid Bergman makes it to act in another day. But We're going to look at some of the solutions once we get through the exposition here. So, in order to do that, let's continue on through the passage. Verse 16. Who were they who heard and rebelled? So, look at this this question-answer session, right? So, he's clarifying something, the writer. Who were they that heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? Okay, clear enough. And with whom was God angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter this rest if not those who disobeyed? So what's he doing here? He's showing us, he's he's clarifying. All right, who was it that rebelled? It was the people God brought out of Egypt, right? God had brought them out and redeemed them, and yet they rebelled. Who is he angry with? Well, it's those who sinned. Those who sinned suffered death in the desert because the wages of sin is death. Who did he swear that they would not enter his rest by entering into the promised land if not those who had disobeyed? Do you see this? He's structuring this reality that actions have consequences. They heard and rebelled. They, he was angry because they sinned. They did not enter his rest because they disobeyed him. And so in verse 19, he says, So we see that they were not able to enter this rest because of their unbelief. Because actions have consequences and unbelief has consequences. We cannot just believe whatever we want and think that we can live without consequences. It just isn't true. What we believe gets manifested in how we live our lives. And the Israelites had believed something false about God. They believed that he was vindictive, that he wouldn't take care of them. This is right after he had miraculously produced manna for millions of people to eat. And right after that, they'd just seen, And I mean, look at the things, if you, if, I feel like if we had witnessed, if all of us had walked through, I say this, we're probably just, I'm just like the Israelites. If I had witnessed and I'd walk through the water on dry land, probably 30 minutes later I'd be gone. well, what are you going to do for me now? You know, I'm like, I, I like, that wasn't, that was cool, but what's next, you know? And then I come up to a very small thing like I'm thirsty. He just opened up the sea. Can he not give me a drink? Like, that's what we should be saying. So he says that you see to it that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. So that word unbelief, It happens again in the book of of Mark. It happens quite a bit in the the Bible, by the way. But in the book of Mark, I don't know if you remember, in chapter 9, there's this story. And there's this boy who who had this evil spirit. You can turn with me or not, but it's in Mark chapter 9. And uh, the disciples were there, and they couldn't get this demon out. And so they bring this boy to Jesus in 920. And so they brought him, and when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like that? From childhood, he answered. It's often thrown him into the fire or the water to kill him. Can you imagine? But if you, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who, what? Believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Do you see that dichotomy there? Do you see that tension? I believe. Like I believe that you can do something, but there's a part of me that's doubting. I don't know. I don't understand. You can be a believer in doubt. Like that's normal. You can be a believer and struggle with unbelief. I know it because this entire book was written about that. This entire book was written to people who are struggling to believe who Jesus is and trust him with their entire life. And so this idea of unbelief, I don't want you to be thinking, oh, you either, it's like this black and white, I I fully believe, or I fully unbelieve. That's just not reality. There is belief that saves us, and then there is belief that walks us through our sanctification in the process of salvation. And Hebrews is written to believers saying, continue in the faith that you had when you came to Jesus. Continue in, as verse 6 says, to hold on to our courage and the hope on which we boast so that when you hear God's voice, you don't harden your hearts. Okay, so what do we start to do with all of this? The first thing I think pulled out, there's a lot of applications from here, as always, but one is that isolation is, is deadly. We said at the very beginning of this pandemic that we, and Treb said this very clearly, that, that social distancing is evil. Maybe a necessary evil, but it's evil. And the reason that it's evil is because it keeps people apart. And when people are isolated, sin grows in the dark, and, and the devil can, can attack us one by one. Just like a pack of wolves separates the weak out of the flock and, and or out of the herd and attacks them because the strength of the herd cannot help. Look at what it says. Brothers and sisters, see to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving believing heart that turned to us from the living God. Who is that written to? It's written to the family of God. We're supposed to watch out for each other. We're supposed to be the herd, Right? That if the wolves are coming in to, to pull out the weak, those of us who are struggling, man, then we gather around them and, and kick like crazy to protect the weak among our flock, to protect those whose faith is weak. And this is not something that you have to go to seminary to get a degree for. You don't have to. In order to, to encourage one another daily, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness, you just have to, first, you have to care. Second, you have to just invite people into your world. Just say, "Hey, would you just come over? Can we have it? just engage with people? Invite them over. Like, get your shot, wear a mask, whatever you got to do. Meet outside. Go. I don't care. Just how you do it. Just invite people into your each other's worlds. Let our worlds orbit around one another. I guess we're all supposed to be orbiting around Jesus. I'm going to use that metaphor, right? But we're we're in this thing together, and you need to invite people in. Third, you need to be able to listen. Just stop talking. It's really hard for preachers to say that because we talk all the time. But the capacity to ask a question and then be quiet while someone answers, it's a discipline. Say, hey, how are you doing? Open-ended question, right? And then be quiet for like three minutes and just let them talk. Some of them will say, oh, we're good. And then just still be quiet. Okay. And then just listen. And someone will say, I mean, you know, we've got... There's stuff going on. Oh, man, what, like what? Well, you, you know, just, well, you know, I like at work. Oh, okay. Just listen to well, them. What about you and the wife? Oh, we're, we're good. Okay. Well, what's good look like for you guys? Well, I mean, we're just listen. Like in three minutes, people can share an unbelievable depth of their suffering and their, di- and their difficulty, and they can share that they need encouragement because they're not walking with Jesus. That Maybe their hearts are hardened, and you could even get in somewhere where you can ask somebody and say, Hey, is your do you feel like your heart is like you're hearing God's voice and your heart to it? That's a good question, right? I guess it's a close-ended question, so maybe not the best, but not a bad question. And so listen, care. I want you to invite people, listen to them, and then you have to know the truth. Because you can't just listen to people. You gotta be able to lead them to the truth. You have to be able to lead them to the word of God to say, Oh, hold on. Why? Because it says, today if you hear what? His voice. You don't need to hear my voice. You need to hear God's voice. My voice is irrelevant in the equation. God's voice is where it matters. His word is where we hear his voice. And we have to be engaged in the word of God to hear his voice. So that leads me to my next thing, which is um, actually still in isolation. If you are, you're going to hear this over and over and over again. If you're not involved in a life group at a church, we encourage you to get involved in a life group. If I have any life group leaders here, would you just raise your hand? Anybody who leads one of our life groups? I know, I didn't give you any warning. So raise it high, stick it up, it's okay. Anybody? Okay, well never mind, they're like this. They're like the timid life group leaders. Have courage, raise up your hands. Anyway, um, if you see one of those people who are going like this, when they should be sticking their hands up really high. Uh, go and talk to them. They lead our life groups. And the reason that they lead our life groups is because life groups are led by the people of the church. And so I guess I lead a life group. I should have raised my own hand. But um, the purpose of a life group is not, it, it's, it's to do this very thing. It's so that we can encourage one another daily as long as it's still called a day so that none of us may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So that we can come to one another and we can open the word of God together and I can say, I, I'm really, I'm struggling. I'm having a hard time. I, I read God's word and it's just like it's just bouncing off of granite. It's not working. And we can encourage one another with the truth of God's word. But if you're doing this thing in isolation, you're going to struggle. You're going to struggle in a life group. If I'm being real honest with you, they're a struggle. But at least the struggle in a life group is that we can come around each other. You're not isolated. Someone knows your name. Someone knows where you live. Someone knows what your favorite beverage is. They can come to your house if you need something. They can pray for you. You connect with people, and you're in community, which is what God made us to do. Okay, that's enough of a thing on that. Isolation is deadly. Second, we need to have knowledge and experience. So, what do I mean by that? We have to know the Word of God. We have to have regular, I don't want to say daily because I don't want you to make it some sort of legalistic thing. Like, if you read the one year Bible, I've done the one year Bible, I've read it, but I just, I would miss a day or two, and then I'm like, then I'm having to read like 75 chapters. They'll just get worn down. Like, oh gosh, I love you, Laura, but I missed like three days in a row, and I'm going to spend four hours reading the Bible. It's like, "Ah, ah, ah." okay, now I'm done. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about regular engagement with the Word of God, right? Just just open the Bible and read it. It does not have to be complicated. We have a Bible reading plan that we put out, uh, which, full confession, this week is a rough week. I didn't get half the stuff out I was supposed to, so if you didn't get the study guide, that's because I, I wrote it and forgot to post it. Anyway, God's grace is good enough for all that, so we'll figure it out. But you just open the Bible and read it if you don't know how to do that, I've said this a bazillion times, just shoot me an email, brandon at thevineokc.com, and say, would you please help me learn how to study the Bible, and I will help you. It's, I love it. So just, but I mean just read it. In particular, we're going to talk about the Psalms in just a minute. But to have regular encounters with God in His Word. The next chapter we're going to look at is going to talk about the living and active Word of God. It is not some old document. It is not some useless text. It is the Word of God. And for those who can engage in it, they realize that it's living and active. It speaks to me today. And I need to listen to the voice of God through His Word. I need to have regular encounters so that I can grow in knowledge. Why? Because I need to be able to help those who are struggling. I need to be able to encourage those who are struggling with something. So also experience. And by that I mean... We need to experience the the faithfulness of God worked out in daily life. What does that look like? I mean to like take a, write down real needs and specific needs that you have. And like a prayer journal. Write down, Lord, I needed this. Lord, help me with this. And then leave a space and then write down how he answers it. When We got our youngest, Joseph, from the Congo. It was this year, year and a half long process. It was like every single step was this thing that we couldn't do. Like he had to get, we had to get a paper done at the embassy when we lived in Guatemala. Had to go to the consulate and get this thing done. There's no way we could get it in time. So we're driving there really fast and having somebody watch our kids saying, Lord, this has to get through today. Only you can do it. Please do it. We're going to fill out the paperwork and turn it in and we're going to trust you to do it. And he did it. Lord, you need this blood test today so that he can get this surgery done. And so Lord, we're going to do this, and then he provided a small plan, and Jenny and Joseph fly in this plane to get this blood test in, and it goes in, and we write those things down because God is faithful, and we want to make testimony of it. So you get a prayer journal, and I don't care what you buy. You can buy a 99-cent lab journal from Walmart. You can write it on your phone. You can make a spreadsheet for all you Excel people out there. You can do whatever you want to. You can carve it into stone. You can needlepoint. You can carve it into wood. I don't care what you do, but write down your prayer request, and then write out how God answers them. That's what I mean. And in that way, you will experience the faithfulness of God. Now, this is a bit off the cuff, so I want to ask if there's anybody in here who has experienced, ask God for a specific need, a real need in real time, and that God has then answered that need for you. And if you would be willing, you're on video, by the way, so the horror can see this, so be careful. But if the Spirit is leading anybody in here, I'm not going to wait until somebody stands up or anything. It's not going like, to be like that, like, Tom, you know, Don's going to come up here and play just as I am until you answer. But... If, if anybody in here has like something, God's laying something on your heart and you want to testify about, there he is right there, miracle boy. Anyway, um, if anybody wants to testify, hey buddy, he's got a Nerf gun, getting, getting held up over here. That's how we roll, a little bit of, we are in Oklahoma, so gun laws and all that. So um, so he's telling me to chill out, I get really excited when I preach, so they, uh, they make fun of me. My um, kids are super sassy, it's, uh, they, they get it from their dad. Oh, he's not sassy. There he goes. Love that child. (laughs) I mean, that's the perfect answer to I'm not sassy right Is a sassy comeback. So um, they are their own humans, man. Okay, so makes me just so happy. Um, If God has, if there is a time in your life where you want to just tell us to say, listen, this is a need that I had. I asked God for it. This could be something recent, and this is how God answered it. I want to just give you a space to do that right now. Just to stand up and say, hey, I had this need. We asked the Lord for it, and this is how he answered it. Yes? Johnny? Hallelujah. Because God is faithful. Yes, He knows what we need and He's faithful to it. Do you remember what Jesus said to that guy? Everything is possible for those who believe. If we pray for what God wants for us, and when did they get all lost in the weeds, of, was it in the Just ask him for what you need. Your grandson needed an internship. And so you can't do anything about it, but you can pray and the Lord provided glory. Jenny. <laughs> I should have asked that I not get sick at all but in, in, uh, that's right one of us needed to be healthy to take care of the others who were sick and so as soon as she got better I got sick and the Lord was faithful in doing that yes anybody else <laughs> see those are just oh, is that Linda is your hand up in the back hey Linda Okay, so Linda, the lock on the front door of your building is broken. You need it fixed. Well, we're going to pray for that. I'm also going to call your building manager, but we're going to pray for that. And and we're going to see what the Lord does and see that he fixes it. Because that is a real need in real time. She needs a lock on the front of her building. And because she does, because it keeps her safe. And so we're going to ask the Lord to get the lock fixed on her building, which probably means he'll send a human to fix it. He may miraculously fix the lock. I don't know. But we're going to ask him. Why? Because he's faithful. And we can ask him for our needs. Thank you, Linda. Anything else? Not a prayer request anymore, but just like a, a time when you've asked God for something that he's answered. So all the people who gave things were all over 40. So if you're young and in here, um, I encourage you uh, to ask. Not that you've never asked the Lord for anything. But I encourage you to just be bold in asking the Lord for help. Ask him for practical things, like, Lord, I need this job. Lord, I need my cart to start. We had a friend in Guatemala who was a missionary, and, I mean, he prayed all of that. And, like, his, he called me once, and uh, his battery was dead, and he was like, hey, my battery's dead. I'm going to pray first, that the Lord will jump my battery, and then if not, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, gonna, to need you to come jump me. And so we, like, prayed over the phone, and he turns his car on, and the battery starts. And he's like, all right, Lord, jump my battery, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to your house and we'll charge it. You know, that kind of thing. It just happens all the time to those who are willing to trust the Lord with their needs. When I stand over here and say, Lord, I've got this, he's like, all right, get it. That's it. That's what the Israelites did in the desert. Lord, we're in the desert. We've got this. Now we're thirsty. Your fault. Instead of saying, Lord, we're thirsty, you know our need. Help us. You see the difference in the attitude there? And that comes from knowledge and experience. So if you're struggling just in your, in your own data and you're thinking, man, I swear, all they do is tell me to read the Bible here. Okay, so there's a reason we say it. It's because it's, you're not going to grow without it and you're going to struggle. And, but anyway, because it's necessary. But if you're struggling with it, if you're like, I, I just cannot get regular time in the Bible. Okay, if you're struggling with that, you're going to have to say no to something else to say yes to study the Bible. Sorry. There's no other way around it. It's called discipline. And there's nothing... There's nothing fancy about it. There's nothing awesome about it. It's like I have to say no to Netflix or whatever. It is keeping me up at late at night so I can't wake up early so I can go to bed on time so I can wake up enough early to get my Bible. Or maybe I read at night. I've got to say no to reading the news or checking my email one more time or scrolling through social media or checking a text or reading that book or whatever so that I can say yes to spending time in the Word of God. Maybe I say no to do it. You've got to say no to something, even if it's a good thing, to say yes to the best thing, the necessary thing which is reading the Bible. I ask people all the time who don't read the Bible, I say, "How? what's something that you do every day? And Unless something is wrong with you, every day you go to the bathroom. Why? Because you have to. Okay. You have to read the Bible more than you need to poop. Okay? That is how serious it is. So I want you to have that image, not image, sorry, have that concept, not that image, not what I meant. I'm sorry. Have this thought in your mind, I despre- I need the Word of God. The Israelites needed water in the desert. Without it, they die. Without regular time in the Word of God, you will die too. And I say this in part because belief is a status of the heart. It is a position of the heart. I want you to just think in your mind of, of high-profile Christians who have fallen from grace, who have fallen Think like Robbie Zacharias. Think, I've got people, I know when I went to seminary, uh, one of the chancellors there kept, um, kept a list of people who had gone to that seminary and who had just fallen. And the reason they had fallen was this, because they had allowed their hearts to get hard to the voice of God. That is the only way that Robbie Zacharias can become a wicked, evil predator is because he allowed his heart to become hard to the voice of God. He never turned from Christianity. You realize that, right? He mentally assented to the death and resurrection of Jesus, proclaimed it as the most coherent uh, world philosophy around. And then he heard him manipulate. He did just what this guy did, Gregory did, to his wife in the movie. Deceived. He was overwhelmed by the deceitfulness of sin, and it hardened his heart to God's voice, and he walked in his sin. The only way out of that is to come to the Lord, and just like Eustace in, in, um, in uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, when, when Aslan rips off the scales, if you've never seen that, read the book, or heard the stories. He, this boy, by his greed, becomes this dragon, and Aslan rips the scales off of the dragon. Tears them, and it hurts him deeply. This is what happens when we're in sin, and we come to the Word of God. It hurts. It hurts me in my soul But when my soul is hurting, when I'm reading the word of God, it is tender to it. If you have not hurt in the word, be careful. So, this warning is to all of us to keep our heart tender before the Lord. And finally, I want to actually turn to the psalm that this whole chapter is based on, which is Psalm 95. Wonderful psalm, it was a call to worship. Anybody who was singing choruses in the mid-90s will know this psalm. Um, Come, let us kneel down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. But look at how this psalm starts out. We know the end of the psalm in the half, last half of verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, etc. We just went through that. But look how the psalm starts. Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout Allowed to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. And that is what we've been doing this morning. Why? For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods, and in his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. And this is truth about who God is. Our worship is based in spirit and in truth. And so this is truth about who God is. The Lord is the great God. He created all these things. And our response to that in verse 6 is what? Come let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep or the flock under his care. This is what we were made to do. This is what I mean when I say to come to the word of God, to kneel before the Lord in worship. If you never get on your knees in front of a Bible, I'm not, please don't get legalistic about it. The reason I have to get on my knees in front of the Lord is because the heart has such a tendency to get hard. That's what that song we sang about prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, O Lord, and seal it Seal it for thy courts above. This is the cry from centuries ago that we still sing today because it's the reality of humankind. That we have to kneel before the Lord in worship. Why? Because he's our God and we are the people of his pasture. Because belief is the state of our heart. So I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what's going on in your life. Um, but I know that all of us need encouragement. You do, I do. I need people to encourage me daily, as long as it's still called today, so that none of us may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness, brothers and sisters. We've got to be awake. Just like that husband in there, eventually that wife wakes up. She's like, "Wait a minute!" And truth gets in the way of his schemes. I you want to think at, or look at. I was looking up what uh, what psychologists do nowadays to uh, to help. People who are being gaslit by people who manipulate it. And I want you to read this. This is all from secular psychology, but all truth is God's truth. And so they, I think, stole it from the Bible. They don't know it yet. But listen to this. four things they say to help people for, to help people who are under this gaslighting manipulation. One, keeping a secret diary. It allows the person to track events, including the date, time, and details of what happened. That sounds a whole lot like a prayer journal to me. Just write a journal. Keep it. Write it down. I already said that. So second. Talking to a trusted family member, friend, or counselor. This may help someone gain an outside perspective on the situation and to create an external additional record of information. That is called fellowship. It's what we do in the community of believers. Talk to a trusted family member, friend, or counselor. That's what we do in life groups. Like, that's how the church is supposed to work. last two things is taking pictures and keeping voice memos. It can help you fact-check memories and remind themselves that they're not imagining things. That's called being in the Word of God. You have to fact check what someone is saying against the Word of God. Someone says something to you, you're like, I don't know that that's necessarily true. I'm going to find it in the Bible. Nope, it's a lie, liar. You can call him a liar. But you have to be in it to do it. Do you see these things? Keep a journal. Be in the Word. Be in fellowship. This is how we can encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, I am grateful to you that you are our high priest, our counselor, that you are our friend, that you are our brother. All these names that just begin to help us understand the reality of who you are. Your great glory, your great goodness, your great kindness, your great love for us. I thank you that you call us and to look back to our brothers and sisters in Israel who would, by their unbelief, had missed out on the blessing of resting in the promised land. We do not want to be like that. But we want, Lord Jesus, to have hearts that are soft and tender before your word. I pray for all of us today that you would keep our hearts tender. Keep our our hearts tender and in the word. Keep our hearts soft to fellowship. Keep our hearts tender to grief, tender to pain, tender to one another. That we would encourage one another daily, as long as it is still called the day, that none of us would be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Lord Jesus, we call out sin for what it is, which is a deceiver. We call out the devil for what he is, which is the deceiver, the father of lies. He is a murderer. He was from the beginning. He still is today. We call out the world for what it is, which is a, a philosophy totally contrary to your character. We call out our flesh for what it is, which is every part of us that wants to wallow in the mud when you call us to trust you and to soar on the wind like eagles. We call out the truth of the word of God and we call it out in the face of sin in our own lives so that we would not be hardened by its deceitfulness. Give us eyes to see, Lord Jesus, and give us hearts to trust in you. In your risen name we pray, amen.